to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Well, there was only one big story this week, and it pretty much took over the airwaves, television, radio, everybody was talking about it. It started with an announcement that the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, and his wife Melania had both tested positive for the coronavirus, the China virus, the Wuhan virus. It was shocking news, and the country was reeling in one way or another. There were many of us who were shocked and worried and concerned about what this would mean for the elections, for the future of this country, for the future of America. And then there were others who thought it was funny, who thought it was justice, who thought some vile things and said some vile things. This is the president of the United States. You may not like him. In some cases, I guess there are Americans who really hate him. But he is the president, and he is due a certain amount of respect. There were people saying, I wish he would die. I hope he dies. It was horrible, and I don't understand people who can even think that, no less say it in public and broadcast it. It's really despicable and inexcusable. This is not who we are as Americans. We have never been this way. And to be this way now is a very dangerous warning for us that we need to repair what is wrong with America today. And that's Overall, that's what I want to talk about today when we discuss the upcoming elections and what the ramifications of that election will be and what it's going to mean to us as Americans if Donald Trump wins re-election or, on the other hand, if Joe Biden wins the election. And I'm going to talk about both sides of that discussion. Most of us learned uh, that Donald Trump and the First Lady had both contracted the China virus on Friday morning when we woke up because the news had been released right after midnight the night before. And it was a bit of a shock to people in America. It didn't take very long before everybody knew, and not just in the United States, not just in our country, but around the world. People were talking about it. People were shocked. Thousands of good wishes and get well soon messages came to Donald Trump and his wife from all over the world. There were, of course, others who were not so kind and were, in fact, vicious, something I will never understand. But in any case, by Friday afternoon, the president was on his way to Walter Reed Hospital, which is the hospital that presidents go to when they need urgent medical care. And so, you know, in that hospital, it's very interesting, the president just doesn't go to a, a room with a bed like most of us. In his case, in the case of the president, there is a whole presidential suite with offices and room for his assistants and so forth. COVID-19 has presented a, an unusual problem in this regard because 
it is contagious, obviously. And uh, so when presidents have been there before, it's either been because of a, a surgical need or, a, in, in the case of Ronald Reagan, it was a gunshot. And in those cases, the presidents were able to have visitors and, and have their staff around them if necessary. But in this case, there were a lot of extra precautions that needed to be taken. But in the meantime, the president was able to work. He was well enough to work. You know, this is an extraordinary man. He has a seemingly unlimited amount of energy. It's said that he only sleeps about four hours a night, and the rest of the time he's up and working and catching up on the news. He reads a number of newspapers, I'm told, every day. And he marks the articles that he thinks are important and that need some follow-through. In any case, he was working for most of the time that he was at the hospital, but he was being given a whole series of medicines, some of them experimental, but well on their way to receiving certification. And uh, as a result, he went in on Friday afternoon, and by Monday afternoon, he was back in the White House. And that is truly remarkable. But this is a remarkable man, and his physical fortitude seems to be enormous. But in addition to that, he got the medical care that a president of the United States deserves. For example, uh, before he ever got to the hospital, while he was still in the White House, he received an infusion of a medicine called Regeneron, now, this is an experimental medicine. It hasn't, it's not on the market yet. You or I could not get this if we come down with the, God forbid, the, the China virus. But in his case, he was given it, and there were no negative side effects from that. And then he went immediately to Walter Reed, where he got other medication. He got a whole series of generic medication in addition to five doses one every evening for five days, of a new medication called remdesivir. And this, too, is an experimental drug. It's not yet been approved for use by the public. So the president received, as I said before, some extraordinary medical care. He was feeling pretty good throughout most of this, as far as we can tell, and as far as the doctors are willing to tell us. But here's my point in telling you all this. When he got back to the White House late Monday afternoon, he told everybody in a few words that he said before he went into the White House that we shouldn't be afraid of this disease, of the China virus, and that we should go about living our lives as normally as possible. It's a good sentiment, and I understand that he was trying to encourage us, but His experience with this virus was not like anything that the rest of us are likely to go through. If we are infected by this virus and we're asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, then maybe we will feel some of the things that he did. But we will never, even if the attack is more severe than what he went through. We would never be able to get the kind of treatment and medical attention that he got. So for him to tell us not to be afraid because it's really not that bad, 
that's a bit disingenuous as far as I can tell. And I would be far more cautious than he apparently is willing to be. In fact, one of the things that, of course, the left-wing media noticed immediately was that when he got to the White House and was standing on the balcony before he went inside, he took his mask off, which was okay outside because he was probably 100 feet from any other person and nobody was going to be infected by being too close to him. But then when he went into the White House, he was still not wearing his mask. And that raises some questions about how seriously he is still taking this virus attack on him and his wife, and now on a growing number of people working in the White House. And that is becoming a much more serious problem so for him to walk into the White House, with, walk around in the White House without a mask would be questionable at best. In any case, let's get back to the subject at hand. What impact will his getting sick with the virus have on the election? We know that there is a debate coming up on the 15th, and he is determined, he says, to participate in it. Joe Biden's campaign team has said that he is ready and willing to take part in this campaign. Of course, they say it depends on a variety of factors, including the president's health, and that's pretty obvious. But as far as we can tell, this is something which is going to take place on the 15th, and it doesn't take a genius to figure out that a lot of people are going to be watching it. The first debate was a riot. It was a circus. And Chris Wallace, who was the moderator, could barely keep a lid on things. He was really having a hard time maintaining control of, the, what, of what was going on on the stage between the two candidates. And they were having at it. So there was a lot of uh, disagreement on the part of the candidates and their teams in terms of who won the debate. On the Democrat side, they said that it was clearly Biden who won the debate. And on the Republican side, it was clearly Trump who won the debate. And so, at, and so it goes. Uh, the next debate, I suspect, is going to be somewhat more contained. And it might be a lot more interesting and hopefully will have more substance than the first debate did. The outcome of this election will be very important to the American people and to the future of this country. As we've said before, this is likely to be the most important election. No, this will be the most important election in our lifetime. We've said from time to time in the past, well, you can vote Republican or Democrat, doesn't matter. They're all the same. But that's not true anymore. If it were ever true before, it certainly is not true today. The country is deeply divided. The Republicans represent the traditional America that we know and love based on constitutional principles and values. The Democrats, on the other hand, have moved very far to the left. It started maybe with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez introducing the concept of the Green New Deal, which is very socialistic, 
and not at all in keeping with freedom tied to personal responsibility, but depends instead on government to control just about everything in our lives in order to create a green society and to do far more than our fair share in cutting the pollution in this world. So the choice that we have in front of us today, and it's coming very close because the election is not even a month away anymore. We are facing a choice between the constitutional America that we know and capitalism, which we also know, and socialism, which we have no experience with in this country for good reason, but which has shown to be a failing form of government wherever it has been tried around the world. Historically, the Soviet Union, Cuba, Venezuela, and even China, which is full of bluster and saber-rattling, but is having a very, very hard time economically in terms of its public health, its infrastructure, to mention just a few. But this is just a small look at what the Democrats are proposing. They are proposing, and Joe Biden has said this unequivocally, although he's denying it now. They have proposed higher taxes. In fact, Joe Biden said that one of the first things he's going to do on the first day he's in office is to cancel all of Donald Trump's tax reforms. He tries to take a middle ground, but he has said unequivocally that he's going to raise taxes. And here's the more serious part of the election. It's more serious and stunning, really. It's not about the presidential candidate. It's not about Joe Biden. And here's why. Joe Biden has shown signs of cognitive deterioration. It may be, I'm no doctor, of course, but it may be that he is showing the initial signs of age-related dementia. And should this interfere with his ability to sit in the Oval Office and run the country, then it seems very clear that there is a plan afoot by the Democrat Party to replace him at some point with his vice president, Kamala Harris. And she has been called the most radical Democrat in the Senate. We need to know a lot more about Kamala Harris and where she stands on the issues. If she becomes the first woman president in U.S. history, we are likely to slide very quickly down the slippery slope of socialism in America. And that will mean if all the socialist programs they have been talking about are put in place, like single-payer health insurance, like the Green New Deal, like defunding the police, my gosh. Well, we're in for something very, very scary. We've already seen it in some of our cities, cities that are functioning under Democrat management. We've seen it in Portland and Seattle, in New York City, in Minneapolis, in Chicago, in Los Angeles. We are likely to see this spread. And under a Democrat president, someone like Kamala Harris, we are likely to see this in cities all over the country. Last June, 
Kamala Harris appeared on the Stephen Colbert show, and she said something about the demonstrations that were happening around the country. She said, quote, they're not going to stop, and everyone beware, because they're not going to stop. They're not going to stop before Election Day in November, and they're not going to stop after Election Day. Everyone should take note of that on both levels, that they're not going to let up, and they should not, and we should not, unquote. She was referring to demonstrations, and she didn't differentiate between peaceful demonstrations and violent demonstrations, which we call riots. Now, in the next segment, right after the break, I want to talk to you about what the pandemic and the riots in our cities, what impact they have on the upcoming election, and conversely, what impact this election is going to have on the riots and the pandemic. It's all coming right up, so don't go away. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Let's talk for a minute about consequences. What are the consequences of the things we do that affect our future? In this case, let's talk about the consequences of the president's illness on the election. What are the consequences of the debates on the election? What are the consequences of the riots on the election? And lastly, what are the consequences of the inability or unwillingness of Democrat mayors and governors to hold these riots in check? The definition, one definition of consequence is this. It's something that logically or naturally follows from an action or condition. If you don't understand that actions have consequences, and believe it or not, there are some people who do not get it, who don't understand that, and so they keep making the same mistakes over and over again. And that is the problem. If you don't understand it, then you will keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Ronald Reagan once said, Quote, I hope we once again have reminded people that man is not free unless government is limited. There's a clear cause and effect here that is as neat and predictable as a law of physics. As government expands, liberty 
contracts, unquote. Well, that is a lesson that we would be very wise to take to heart today because the choices we are facing are between capitalism and socialism. And the consequences of this decision will be decisive and will determine the course of American history for many, many years. That's a very good example of cause and effect. As government grows, our liberty contracts. It stands to reason the more power that the government has, the more likely it will be to try to control what it can. It imposes taxes, so it controls the money that we earn and takes it away from us. It, it wants to control what your children learn in school. And as a result, our children are now learning things that only one or two generations ago would have been unthinkable. If we as a country rattle our sabers at another country, the consequences are that we may start a war. On the other hand, if we offer peace in a way that has never been offered before, we may wage peace in a region that never had it and so forth. These are acts and these are consequences. As we face the election coming up in less than a month, we need to see that our vote, whichever way it goes, will have consequences in the larger picture. So what are the consequences of the president's diagnosis of COVID-19 or China virus? Well, it depends on your point of view, of course. If you are a Democrat, you might think that he deserves it because he didn't want to wear a mask because he held all these, these huge rallies where people came and some wore masks and some didn't, but it wasn't required. You may say that he had this open event in which he nominated Judge Amy Coney Barrett for the Supreme Court and a hundred people were there and they all sat reasonably close together and many of them did not wear masks. And some of the people who attended were later diagnosed with the China virus. And some are saying that that event was a super spreader and maybe it was. That would be a consequence of not requiring masks and social distancing. So how does that impact the possible results of the coming election? Well, it was only one event, and on its own, it might not affect too many people in terms of how they would vote. But on the other hand, if it's seen as symptomatic of a culture of irresponsibility on the part of the Republicans, it might sway some undecided votes to vote for the Democrats. If the picture of President Trump taking off his mask when he got back to the White House and then walking into the White House without his mask, if that disturbed you, then that might also alter your vote. The Democrats like to think that Trump was irresponsible in the way that he dealt with COVID-19. But you know, that's not my opinion. Sure, I really do wish that the president would set a better example for the rest of the country by wearing his mask and being more careful about exposing other people and himself 
to possible infection. I'd prefer that. But in the larger picture, he has done so much to protect Americans from this virus that his personal actions are less important than the real concrete actions that he took that saved a huge number of American lives from this horrible and deadly virus. My opinion is that he did everything that he should have done in terms of actions. And those actions had consequences that related to what is probably a much lower number of deaths as a result of the virus than would have happened if, for example, he had not imposed the ban on travel to and from China, when there was only one known case of the virus in the United States, or if he hadn't provided millions of PPE and thousands of ventilators to hospitals all over the country. Those saved lives. And when he energized industry to start producing to retool their factories and start producing PPE and ventilators right here in America instead of importing them from China. And he sent thousands of units to hospitals all over the country so that the cities whose hospitals were desperate for them could have what they need in time. Even Governor Cuomo, who is his worst critic now, praised him for all the efforts that he made to provide New York State with ventilators and PPE and even a hospital ship, the largest one in the world, to New York Harbor to provide hospital space for the overflow from New York City hospitals. Trump did a lot during this pandemic emergency. And he's not given credit for it, which I think is a shame, because he must have saved, because of his actions, hundreds of thousands of lives. Dr. Fauci himself made a statement about this when he said in an MSNBC interview, quote, one of the things we did right was very early cut off travel from China to the United States. Our shutting off travel from China and more recently travel from Europe has gone a long way to not seeding very, very intensely the virus in our country, unquote. Joe Biden at the time said that that action, which took place at the end of January on January 31st, that that action was xenophobic. And he calls Trump's use of the word China virus as racist, even though we all know that that's where the virus came from. There may be consequences to Biden's flippant use of these epithets, which are not based on fact, they're based on lies. And he uses them in an attempt to tar the reputation of President Donald Trump. He also said that Donald Trump is, quote, the worst possible person to lead our country through a global health emergency, quote, even though... Joe Biden was vice president under Barack Obama, and it was his administration who did not restock the nation's emergency supply of medical equipment during and after the H1N1 epidemic that occurred during that administration. And by the way, there were no consequences to that inaction, except that this year, 
during the onslaught of the coronavirus, the China virus, there were not enough PPE or ventilators to take care of all the patients who were suddenly appearing in different hospitals around the country. And it was up to Donald Trump to find a solution and produce in record time all the equipment that was needed to fight the pandemic. And yet, Donald Trump, who acted appropriately and dramatically, has been subject to unceasing criticism. Will President Trump's actions during the pandemic hold him in good stead during the election, despite all the criticism from the left? I'm hoping people will remember what he did and how many lives he saved. That would be a good outcome, a good consequence of getting it right. And what about the debates? Well, the first debate was extremely entertaining, although it contained relatively little substance. It was essentially the two candidates going at each other in every way they could and keeping the moderator, Chris Wallace, in a state where he seemed to be ready to tear out his hair because he simply could not control the conversation. The consequence of our two presidential candidates, including a sitting president, acting like schoolboys, is one for the books. And I'm hoping that it, it does not become a deciding factor in the elections. That would be too bad because the issues are real and they do need to be discussed openly so that the American people can really understand who these candidates are, what the issues are, and what is the difference between them. Disregarding the rules of combat in this particular debate, Donald Trump made his point because certain subjects that he needed to talk about were not being brought up, and that was specifically the dishonest and illegal activities that Joe Biden and his son Hunter had been carrying out in Russia, in Ukraine, and in China for years, taking advantage of Joe Biden's position as vice president. And he needed to get that on the table, so he jumped in whenever he could. It's not clear what the consequence of that debate is going to be, but it's hopeful that the next two debates will provide a more serious forum with much more substance that will give the voters a much more solid foundation on which to make their decision. Now, what do you suppose will be the consequences of two things going on in Washington right now? The first is the passage of a relief bill for people who have suffered as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and crisis. For people who haven't been working, have lost their jobs, and have no source of income but still have to pay their rent and have to buy food for their families and so forth, the idea was that the government would provide some stimulus funding to help Americans get through this period. It wasn't meant to solve all the problems, but to give Americans a leg up. And that was the point. But the Democrats in Congress who have been writing this bill want $2.5 trillion not only to help individuals and small businesses, but also to bail out the cities that have been 
badly managed, mostly by Democrats, like New York and Seattle and Portland and so forth. In general, the president was in favor of a stimulus bill, but he was not in favor of bailing out the cities who had been so poorly managed. And so when Nancy Pelosi, as head of the Democrat Party, and they have the majority in Congress, when she refused to budge on the $2.5 trillion bill, the president put a stop to the negotiations, period. And he said the reason was that he wanted to concentrate on the confirmation of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. And that's the second issue, something that is going on in Washington in the coming weeks. So we have this balance of issues, the stimulus package on the one hand, and the confirmation of Judge Barrett going on right now. What are the consequences of these two issues? Well, the first issue, the stimulus package, the consequences of that are significant because we're talking about what the president wanted was one and a half trillion dollars, and it would go to the people who need it most, the individuals who may be out of work, and if they're looking for jobs, jobs are scarce right now. And there are also the small business owners who have been forced to either shut their establishments because of the virus, or they can open them, but only with very limited patronage, like restaurants and bars. And these people also need help. And that's what the stimulus package was supposed to be for. So what are the consequences of not passing a stimulus package? Well, they're serious. People are suffering. And although the president is on record supporting this stimulus package, he is absolutely opposed to bailing out the cities, particularly Democrat cities, that have been so badly managed that they are now deeply in debt and are looking for some financial aid from the government to help bail them out. So the consequences are that the people who need this stimulus most are not going to get it. And that is, plain and simple, the fault of Nancy Pelosi and her Democrat Party, who would rather bury the bill entirely than give up their bailout money to the cities for things that have absolutely nothing to do with the COVID-19 pandemic. The other issue is taking place in the Senate, and it has to do with a confirmation of Judge Barrett. Now, the Senate has a Republican majority, and they are determined to win this round against their Democrat opponents who are in the minority and who have vowed to slow the process of confirming Judge Barrett in order to ultimately stop it. We'll see what happens with that. But the consequences of Judge Barrett being confirmed as a justice on the Supreme Court means that the court will now have nine members again, an uneven number, which means that on issues relating to the presidential election that are no doubt going to come up after the election, it will be possible to have a deciding vote on this issue and any other that come up. There will never be an evenly divided court if there is an uneven number of justices, and that is the point. Now, after the break, we are going to continue to talk about some of the consequences of what's going on. The next issue we'll talk about is what are the consequences of the riots in our cities? What are the consequences of mayors and governors who refuse to restore law and order, who even go so far as to support defunding their police departments, 
and who refused to ask the president for help to reestablish law and order, even as their cities burn. We'll talk about that next, so stay tuned. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. This is not a fight of Republican versus Democrat. It's not a fight of rich versus poor, old versus young, man versus woman, gay versus straight. It's not a fight of black lives, blue lives, Hispanic lives, or white lives. This is a battle of good versus evil. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. We are the vision of the voices, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Do you ever wonder how so many politicians in Washington get so rich? Did you know that Nancy Pelosi, I think I mentioned this last week, did you know that Nancy Pelosi has a net worth of something like $120 million? How in the world did she get to be a multimillionaire with a salary of less than $200,000 a year? And that's just the tip of the iceberg. The wealthiest member of the Senate is Kelly Loeffler. She's a Republican from Georgia. She and her husband earned their fortune, their huge fortune, in industry. And they own what is considered to be the most expensive home in Atlanta, Georgia. Richard Blumenthal, who is a senator from Connecticut, has a net worth of $70 million. But he's only been in the Senate since 2011. He made his fortune before he ever got there. And then Dianne Feinstein, she's been in the Senate since 1992. 28 years, and she has a net worth of $58 million. Nita Lowy, Democrat from Westchester County, New York, has a net worth of about $10 million, and Joe Biden has an estimated net worth of $9 million. And the infamous Maxine Waters has a net worth of anywhere from $1.5 to $3 million. And she has faced numerous charges of corruption over the years. Now, don't get me wrong, not all congressmen and women are super wealthy. And not all of them are corrupt. Most of them are not. But that's not to say that there isn't an awful lot of corruption going on in Washington 
on Capitol Hill between congressmen and senators and lobbyists and other interests. This is the swamp that Donald Trump promised to clean up. He's got a long way to go, but he has made his mark. And that's one of the reasons, I think, that they hate him so much. He's trying to destroy their piggy bank. So what are the consequences of having so much corruption in Washington? Well, I think what you have, and it's a very clear example of what the corruption will do, is you have on the one hand the corruption that will lead to the phony impeachment of a president because they hate him and they want him to fail and they will do everything to make that happen. And on the other hand, you have the kind of corruption that leads to the deep state, which becomes a driving force that takes on a life of its own. And the deep state is what led to all of the attacks on Donald Trump from even before he was elected president. During his campaign, from the moment he came down that escalator in the Trump Tower and announced that he was running for president, there have been constant attacks on him. The kind of attacks, not just in words, but the kind of attacks that were designed to bring down his presidency and get him out of the White House. Now, a very interesting thing happened this week, and it's relevant here. We all lived through the drama of the deep state trying to attack and destroy the presidency of Donald Trump. We lived through the Steele dossier and the Russia probe and the Mueller investigation, and then the impeachment hearings and the impeachment trial one thing after another after another, and we remember Peter Strzok and Lisa Page and all of the players, James Comey and so forth. It went on and on and on. And this week, on Tuesday evening, the president tweeted this. I have fully authorized the total declassification of any and all documents pertaining to the single greatest political crime in American history the Russia hoax. Likewise, the Hillary Clinton email scandals. No redactions. This is huge. We have all been waiting for the Durham report on the deep state. We thought we'd get it in July, and then we thought we'd get it in September, and then October, and now it looks like we will not be getting it at all until after the election, which is very disappointing. So what President Trump did by releasing these documents without redactions is to open up the files so that the American people can see what the deep state has done to the integrity of the U.S. government and the trust that the American people have lost because of the dishonesty and downright treasonous behavior of people that we trusted in our government. What will be revealed in these documents may be shocking, may be infuriating, but it will finally shed light on what has been hidden from the American people of the despicable perfidy of people in our government 
in the FBI, in the Department of Justice, people who were sworn to protect us and instead betrayed us, who were willing to spy on our president, to undermine his authority, to undermine his presidency in the name of politics. I'm looking forward to reading this document to begin to understand the depth of what America has been put through by people whose politics was more important to them than their country. We'll talk about this some more once we have more information. So stay tuned. Now, I really want to talk to you a little bit about Joe Biden. We've been talking about corruption. But if anybody is the model of corruption, it's Joe Biden and his son, Hunter. Because what the president was trying to uncover when he kept interrupting during the first debate was a whole history of corruption in the Biden family, specifically with Joe Biden and his son, Hunter. Joe didn't want to talk about it. Joe never wants to talk about it. But it's a thing. It occurred. And it's well documented. And for all we know, it is still occurring. And the things he did were marginally or completely illegal and unethical. Now, the first time I heard about this, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know that much about Joe Biden, frankly. But the first time I heard about it, I happened to be channel surfing. And I saw a video that he was on. He was talking before a group on television, on video anyway. And this was now on television. And he was talking about an experience he had had in Ukraine. And he thought it was funny and he wanted to share it. Here's the story. It's about a $1 billion loan guarantee promised to the Ukrainian government by President Obama. And Joe Biden, who was vice president of the United States, was there in Ukraine to deliver it. But he told them he was going to hold it and not deliver it unless they fired a particular prosecutor. Now, as it turned out, the prosecutor was investigating a Ukrainian company called Burisma, and it so happened that Joe Biden's son, Hunter, was sitting on the board of that company. A coincidence? No, I don't think so. This was an energy company, and it turned out that his son Hunter had no experience at all in energy, not in gas or oil, and yet he was sitting on the board, and he was pulling in a salary of something like $50,000 a month for that privilege of sitting on the board. He also didn't have any experience with the Ukraine, but that didn't seem to matter, And what Joe Biden was saying, and he seemed to be quite proud of it, was that he said to the Ukraine government that I'm going to hold on to this $1 billion and you're not going to get it unless the prosecutor who is investigating Burisma is fired. And you have six hours to get that done, period. And then Joe Biden told his audience, quote, well, son of a bitch. They did it, unquote. The point is, he used his leverage 
as vice president of the United States to keep his son out of legal trouble with the Ukraine government and to enrich him by keeping him on the board of Burisma. But more important, to withhold a promised loan guarantee because he was the vice president of the United States. And when they said, well, you can't make that decision, he said, well, call the White House. You'll see. This is corruption. This is exactly what the Democrats accused Donald Trump of doing. Only he didn't do it, and Biden did. This is deep corruption. He was leveraging his position in order to enrich his son. But it didn't end there. It turns out that there is now an 87-page report that has been done by the U.S. Senate's Homeland Security and Finance Committee on the dealings of the Biden family. The report is called Hunter Biden, Burisma, and Corruption, the Impact on U.S. Government Policy and Related Concerns. Among the things that were uncovered was a $3.5 million wire transfer to Hunter Biden in early 2014 from a woman in Moscow. Who was she? The woman was Elena Baturina, and she is the widow of the former and late mayor of Moscow. She is the richest woman in Russia, and in fact, she is Russia's only female billionaire. How did she make her money? She had a plastics company, and she received a series of lucrative contracts from the municipality of Moscow when her husband was mayor. Talk about corruption. President Trump asked Biden about this during the debate. And Joe Biden, of course, refused to answer. This is just the beginning because we haven't begun to talk about the adventures of Hunter Biden in China. Here's the story. In December 2013, Hunter Biden joined his father, who was flying to China aboard Air Force Two, on an official trip representing the government of the United States. It didn't take more than two weeks before Hunter's company, which was Rosemont Seneca, became a partner in a new investment firm that was backed by the Bank of China, which is owned by the state. In other words, Hunter Biden used this official trip on Air Force Two at the taxpayer's expense to take advantage of his father's position to become a partner in a company in China that would itself invest in strategically sensitive assets in both China and the United States. This had nothing to do with his father's official business. Hunter hitched a ride on Air Force Two and then went on to do business for himself. It was a billion-dollar deal. They called this new firm Bohai Harvest RST, or BHR. Now, the Biden family has denied any connection between the vice president's visit and Hunter's business dealings. But, but BHR revealed that Hunter had used the opportunity of being there to introduce his father, Joe Biden, 
to a private equity executive who became the CEO of BHR after the deal was concluded. Now, Joe Biden says that he had nothing to do with his son's dealings in China and, in fact, didn't know anything about them. Yeah, right. So Joe Biden was not disconnected from Hunter Biden's activities, as he has maintained. Hunter Biden now says that he never realized any money from this billion-dollar deal. And maybe he didn't. We don't know. We have no way of knowing. Not yet, anyway. But what this deal did do was to give Hunter Biden, through BHR, access to major financial opportunities, the kind that most Western businessmen never have an opportunity to do. Once again, he was able to leverage his father's position to enrich himself simply because his father was the vice president of the United States. Plain and simple. Now we've been talking about consequences. And it seems that in the case of the Bidens, there haven't been any negative consequences, despite a history of corruption. In fact, Joe Biden has been able to parlay all of his misdeeds and those of his son into a fairly successful career in politics, and he's been in politics for decades. And now he's running for president of the United States, and he has a fighting chance of winning. So where are the consequences? Where is the payback? Well, life is not always fair, my friends, and justice is not always done. Some people go to their graves with a list of crimes as long as you can imagine. And some people are never rewarded for the things they do right, for all their good deeds. That's life. And sometimes life is very ugly. So it's up to us to see that justice is done. That Joe Biden does not get to the White House. It's going to take a lot of work and we don't have much time. But if we care about this country, if we care about the American people, we have to do whatever is possible for us to do in order to protect and maintain the United States of America, the place we call home, the place that was built on constitutional values, the place it is our job to protect and defend. Socialism is not our way. Socialism is not for us. And we must protect America against it. That is our mission right now. And we have less than a month to do it. Godspeed. Well, the hour has gone by quickly again. Thank you for spending it with me. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.